Welcome to the Sales Lead Dog Podcast, hosted by CRM technology and sales process expert, Christopher Smith, talking with sales leaders that have separated themselves from the rest of the pack. Listen to find out how the best of the best achieve success with their team and CRM technology. And remember, unless you are the lead dog, the view never changes. Welcome to the Sales Lead Dog Podcast. Today joining me, I have Paul Butterfield. Paul is the CEO of the Revenue Flywheel Group. Very cool name, Paul. I like that. Thank you. Welcome to Sales Lead Dog, Paul. Thanks, Chris. I've been really looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. Paul, tell me about Revenue Flywheel Group. I founded Revenue Flywheel Group to work with revenue organizations to achieve what I call customer journey enablement. I've, I've used that term for a while. And so when I launched the business earlier this year, I went and nobody trademarked it. So I did. Um, and the reason I use that term is when, when people, when companies and revenue leaders, GTM leaders think about enablement, right? There's the old, there's the old sales enablement model, which, which is, you know, should have long been retired. And then we start talking about revenue enablement and that made some sense. But when I look at truly doing this customer journey, if you think about Jim Collins, that's the first place I read about a flywheel affected business, right? And it's those doing those seemingly small things that align to create that much greater effect. Think about a go-to-market organization. How do we align marketing and what they're creating with the way sellers should be selling? Because they shouldn't be selling features. We, we can get into that, but how much material still talks about features, maybe a little feature benefit, right? But um, how well are sellers differentiating themselves by the experience they offer or are they starting off demo with the usual pitch deck and i mean uh, starting discovery with the usual pitch deck and a demo and then maybe 10 minutes of questioning at the end um how well are they handing off sales to ps professional services and customer success in my experience in a couple of decades of leading sales teams the answer was not very well in most cases and and so that's what we work to do um I've led global enablement organizations for three large companies and now kind of combine those years as a sales leader with what I have built for companies to enable their teams. And that's what we do. But that's why the name of the company, because when we do it right, we create that revenue flywheel. I love that. That's awesome. Um, When you look back over your sales career, um, Mm -hmm. what are the three things that have really driven your success? One of them is... This may sound like a stereotype, but it, it applies to me. Is competitive almost to a fault, and 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 what I mean by well, I won't get into that. But yes, I've I've had that, and I just don't. I really don't like to lose. I really don't like to fall behind. And I think you have to have some element of that because sales is hard. If every if it wasn't, everybody'd be doing it because it's the greatest career in in the world, right? Yeah. Um, the second thing is, and this actually developed more as I got older and not in school, um, truly do want to focus on, truly did focus on helping people solve problems, right? I mean, that didn't happen right away, you know, but, but over time I I sort of figured out that that's what mattered and I still cared about the commission a lot. Um, but, but working on that and probably the biggest evolution for me when I was leading a Microsoft channel sales group, they taught us on a methodology that taught me for the first time how to really understand my prospects, their world, 
have some and, and develop the business acumen around their world to go in and have a true value added discovery conversation. And that was over 20 years ago, but that was a major turning point. Oh yeah. I tell you that I just don't think you can really be effective in any kind of a complex sales deal or you're mm -hmm. trying to sell any kind of a complex solution mm -hmm. without that deep understanding of the customer. It just isn't. Oh, yeah. Work. Agree. I agree. Yeah. How'd you get your start in sales? All right. Well, this will date me a little bit. Um, I sold Encyclopedia Britannica's in college. So yes, kids, there was a time when <laughs> that wasn't available on Wikipedia online or uh, eb.com or whatever it is. And uh, wasn't even on CD-ROM. CD-ROM is ultimately what did them in way before the internet. But that's what I did. Um, it was a great organization. They provided leads for me at a nominal cost. In fact, they were very much anti-door-to-door. -door. They didn't like that image. They didn't want to look like brush salesmen or something. And the really cool thing for a college kid is if you maintained, I don't remember what it was. It was like one or two sales a quarter. They paid for healthcare insurance. That was like, wow. Yeah, exactly. So that's 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 what I did. And then uh, moving out of it, just gravitated into my first sales job after school. Yeah. Now, I've had a few sales lead dog guests mm -hmm. have similar first sales jobs, and they learned if you stick to the script. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Was that yeah. your experience? Yes, it was. Uh, I had my notebook, my trusty flip chart. <laughs> And take people through the presentation. So, uh, but but it often did. The only gotcha was that once in a while they'd run these promotions where if you have somebody over, you get your choice of one of these best sellers. So I also had to carry a bag full of these. And the reason I say they're stupid is more than once. That's the only reason they wanted me in. Right. Um, and you can try to overcome that. And I did, but I actually appreciated the few times when a customer told me. I honestly just want the book. Um, yeah. I don't have the money. Do yeah. you want to just go? I, you yeah. know what? That's great because now I could go back and prospect or you know yeah. do something useful with the time. So I appreciated that. Oh yeah, you're not wasting your time chasing a deal. Bad news early is good news. Yep. Oh yeah, exactly, exactly. Thinking back to those days when you're you know working through your sales career, working towards becoming a sales leader, mm -hmm. we often learn from the people we're working for, we're trying to emulate their behavior um, so we can be mm -hmm. successful sales leaders. Mm -hmm. Do you have an experience that was the exact opposite of that, where you had that leader where like, man, I do. I'm never going to do that? I do. I could swear Alec Baldwin modeled his character in Glengarry off of this guy, Russ. I won't use any last names. Um, oh, my. Russ just had well i could say anybody who's seen that alec that alec baldwin monologue isn't is, is will get it i remember one time him standing i mean he would routinely get in front of us in sales meetings and just pick some poor soul out of the audience have him stand up and just shred them it, it was it was hard to watch and if you were that guy yeah yeah but but one example i remember that was so cringeworthy is he was trying to motivate us, sadly. I think that's what he was trying to do. And he said that the best, most successful salespeople have one of three things. One, they just went through a brutal divorce, <laughs> lost a bunch of their assets. Two, right. were keeping an affair on the side. And so, you know, that was expensive. Or three, bought too many toys and were up to their eyeballs in debt and so had to sell. Yeah. And I really think that's how he viewed 
right. the the world. But yeah, um, tried not to model that, and it probably helped me a lot. Yeah, that's. Uh, oh man, that makes it hard. Like it sucks your soul out. Where it's like walking in, just about to walk through that door into the office, and you're like oh, taking that deep breath, stealing yourself. Yeah. Man, what's it gonna oh, be? all hands, all hands. You just, you're just like, no, not in your stomach all day because you're going on all hands. And oh, yeah, I, th- I will say another thing about that situation that I think is important for that is noteworthy. And that is, I worked with an amazing director and a couple of his frontline sales leaders that recognized the toxic culture and actually were very effective at shielding us as much as they could and make the environment more tolerable than it otherwise would have been. And I've always appreciated that frontline leadership yeah. makes all the difference. It really does. Let's flip the coin. Okay. Did you have someone that you were just like, that's the sales leader I want to be? There are probably a few that I could talk about, but the one that jumps to mind when you say that is a guy named Frank Maylett. Frank led sales. Um, I forgot how many salespeople reported to him at IBM for a division of IBM. Um, then he went and did it at Brocade and he ultimately became, uh, you know, on the CRO track. I've worked for him three times in my career. So that should tell you something, Oh yeah, but he modeled for me that balance of true interest in your customers and prospects success with never missing his number. I've only, again, three times working for him. I only know of one quarter. Uh, that I can think of when he missed his number. It was rare. The last time I worked for him, he had 13 consecutive quarters that he overachieved. And that was through 2020, 2021, which were not easy times. No, no, they yeah. weren't. That's but, but he was an amazing mentor, still is amazing mentor and example to me. I hope he gets to hear this. So, Is there a single lesson that he gave you that just really has become kind of part of your personal mantra and how you act as a sales leader? I don't know that he realized it because it was really more in the way he embodied it. And that was helping me see that as a sales leader, we have a moral obligation to develop our salespeople. There may or may not be sales. At, well, there's a sales name went through most of my sales career. Uh, when I got started, there weren't SDRs. My first sales job out of school was a, a, Fortune, a DMB a login or a Fortune 1000 director or something like that. But 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 he modeled that. He was always truly interested in our personal development and expected us to do the same for our people. Um, I've, I've always appreciated that. He, he had his three eyes, which were integrity, intelligence, and intensity. And, I, you know, he just, he, he showed us how to do it, but do it with authenticity and compassion. I've always appreciated that. Yeah, I think some people might misinterpret the intensity part of the three eyes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about that a little bit? Like, what's the right way to live the intensity part of that? It goes back to that personal development. He would often use example, shares an example, a friend of his uh, who was, I can't remember, some big deal surgeon who still was continuously taking classes to stay up to date in his field. And he would then put that back on us and ask, you know, what are you doing? Right. He would come out, he'd add, you know, that's what he meant. Don't sit back on your past successes. Always be driving forward. Always be finding ways to get better because that the minute you stop doing that, hence lose the intensity. But that was, that was a big part of it. Oh yeah. It's, 
I try to communicate that to my kids that it's mm-hmm. like, guys, if you think I stopped learning when I graduated college, mm-hmm. that was the beginning of my education. That yeah. was not the end. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like, you, you have, do you want to keep moving forward? It never stops. Yeah. Um, and today's it's like, it's actually so hard to keep up with the amount of, yeah. the amount of resources that are available to you. Yep. Um, it can sometimes be hard to hone in on what's going to be the most valuable. How do you handle that aspect um, when you're working with your clients and they're struggling? Like, where do I go? How do I determine what best practice is and all of that? Mm-hmm. How do you work with your clients to help them understand what's going to work versus what's just this noise or people just trying to sell books? Except for maybe a few rare situations, I all will recommend strongly to the point of maybe recommending we don't work together mm-hmm. unless until I have done a rev org assessment and mm-hmm. I have developed, I've got a template for it that can scale up or down depending on the size of the company, but it involves personal interviews with, with people up and down and across the revenue org and that they choose. It mm-hmm. is getting access to gong or, you know, but, but conversational intelligence Um as well as Clary, I mean, I'm signing an NDA, right? So Clary, uh, forecasting tools, CRM, all of those things. And then what I do with that is I synthesize and I come back to them with a SWOT analysis at a high level. And then working down from that, here are the top three observations I had that are you know, killing your sales or at least holding you back. And then I get into, for each of those, here's what I found that's the causation. And then my top three recommendations for what do we do about it? And assuming I had access to enough of the financials, I also try to model for them a conservative path because one of the problems that GTM leaders see a lot is, oh, we're going to, we're going to implement this and next quarter, we're going to crush it. Nope. You're not going to take a C team to rockstar status in one quarter. And, and so I try to set that expectation, help them see the incremental gains that I expect they'll see. So that that that's the output. And from that comes typically alignment on what the right priorities are. So what are some of those three things that are you commonly? Is there are there certain top ones that you just tend to see on a regular basis, or is it kind of you never know what you're going to mm-hmm. see until you get in there? A couple of common things that I see is the way that people are qualifying prospects, um, especially in SaaS, which is primarily where I work. So that's where my network is. Right. And for example, discovery, the purpose of true discovery and a successful discovery is to understand a gap that your client has between their current state and a desired future state, which they may or may not be able to articulate, and in good discovery, you're going to help them help them get to talking about that, yep. figuring out if it's quantifiable, and then figuring out if it's something that whatever you sell can actually help them achieve. So assuming that that's all the case, the critical part is you do it in a way that helps them create the, the seed of a vision in their own mind. What we think doesn't matter. Right. Salespeople need to get that. It does not matter what we think. You you may talk to, to to that ICP hundreds of times a year, and you may be spot on what they need, but they're not going to see it that way. So you got to help them see it. Um, 
And, and so that, that, that's one way. And by the way, in my experience, that doesn't come from doing a demo right out of the gate. As I said before, it doesn't come from doing a pitch deck with sprag slides and all that stuff. It comes from business acumen and talking to them about the things that matter. You're never going to know more about their business than they do. But what you can do is look at it and help them see it in a different way. That's right. If you are talking to hundreds of that ICP in a year, you probably have picked up things that they don't know. They probably don't have that many in their network. So, so that's one. Another one that I see is the way that deals are being qualified, right? MQL, marketing qualified, sales qualified, far too often is a bit too random. There's uh, way too much negotiation between SDR and an AE uh, mm-hmm. on a deal by deal basis and rock fights break out. We've all seen it. If you're doing that kind of discovery I'm talking about, qualifications should be more along the lines of, did you uncover a quantifiable problem? Yeah. And, you know, And is it something you can help with? And what is the potential impact that they see versus the current negative impact that they're having? If you can answer those, you've got an opportunity to work with. Otherwise, you don't. Right. So those are a couple of repeat, repeat offenses that I see. You know, that's the same thing in my world, uh, implementing CRM. Um, we see that all the time, and it always amazes me when we start asking, what is your qualification criteria? It's, mm-hmm. okay, what person am I talking to in the sales organization? I'll get, that's their their qualification criteria. Yeah. Everyone's doing it the same way. So then I'm like, well, if you don't have that standardized, everybody working in the same direction, how can you trust your data? You know, mm-hmm. how can you trust your pipeline? Mm-hmm. You know, and that it it's, it's coming back to that common framework that yep. everyone's working from like if you don't have that man things are going to be a lot harder than they should be it it it, it is um another common problem that i see that might be interesting uh, to you is how people are calculating their full pipeline coverage mm-hmm. and there's all sorts of sophisticated tools that have come out just in the last couple of years even on that and so i think it's getting better if people are using those tools, but traditionally, how many times have you heard, oh, you know, our pub, our, our funnel coverage is 2.7x. And if we've got that, we're in good shape. That might be, but if 70% of it is in stage one and stage two, and you're in the second month of the quarter, um, it's probably not going to get you there. And it, it's interesting to me that, I mean, I mean, people that understand sales really well, but I just still see a lot of that. What is the right mix of what needs to be in one, two, three, four stages based on historical analysis? But that that that's just another area that I think we can yeah. still help. Oh, yeah. I, I see that a lot in my world, too, when we go and start looking at pipelines that, you know, deals that have been in there way longer than they should be. Mm-hmm. You, know, you get a very pregnant pipeline. Mm-hmm. And again, it's it's that everyone kind of doing it their own way. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you work with the sales leaders, you know, in your role um, to help them work through these issues? You know, how, what do you tackle first? Depends on what I find, but mm-hmm. a very common part of the transition is going to be getting a sales methodology in place, a, 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 a real sales methodology. There's a lot of good in medic. But I worry that a lot of people think that's a methodology and and it's not. If you watch, um, if you watch, I mean, when I certified with them, they even say this is not a methodology, but somehow that perception has has come. 
but we get a real methodology in there. A real methodology is going to do the things that you and I have been talking about. It's going to create a common sales language. It's going to create common qualification criteria. Most importantly, it's going to show them a good methodology that there are consistent customer inputs that every rep should be collecting along the stage cycle. And those customer inputs should at least be one of the primary gates between their stages in their CRM. That will help drive, that does, I've seen it multiple times, that will drive as much of the human element of forecasting out as, as possible because it can be audited. Yep. It, 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 you know, it's easy to inspect. Um, and you're taking a customer, you're taking an outside in view at your stages and that doesn't happen often enough. So no, no, it those are two places that we often start. And then from that, you get to look at what's the messaging and what's the, yeah. but yeah, but until you fix those things, it's hard to initiate the other changes. Right. How many of your customers are, you're just looking back over your career. How often have you seen the situation where your, you know, these companies don't really have even a strong understanding of who their ICP is? I'm glad you asked that. I should have mentioned that when you asked me a couple of questions ago, what are common problems you see? It's yeah. still yeah. a problem yeah. or they think they do, but what they've really done is kind of defined them again, how they're looking at them. They're not going to that next level to talk about, right? If, if a company has been around for any length of time, surely they've done analysis on the problems that their clients are solving. So let's get those in the hands of sellers. And help them understand what are the problems typically that someone in that role is solving with our product or service. Those are the top things. Then logically, you can come from that and start to create, as part of your discovery questions, um, things to uncover, which, if any of those, are currently an issue for them. It may be none of them, but it's but but knowing that is a great way to prime the pump and get conversations going. Um one of the most cringeworthy questions in sales, in my opinion, is Chris, what's keeping you up at night? Oh, yeah. Wrong, right? Your sick. job's not to educate me, right? Yeah. I need yeah. to come understanding your world as much as I can and, and add value to that conversation oh, from yeah. the beginning. I love using stories. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, hey, yep. you know, we had a customer like this, they were dealing with blah, 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 you know does that apply to your business or what? So connecting that story to their own kids. Lots of you have the question there. As soon as you start telling the story, they're like, that's me. Do yeah. You, you yeah. Heard storytelling in your. Ab absolutely. The one shortfall, the common shortfall, I should say that I see in companies that are doing that still is yeah. they stop with, this is who we worked with. This is their problem. This is how they used our solution to solve it. What about the results? Exactly. That's when you have a killer success story. Yes. The other thing I think is interesting about success stories is I read a book years ago called Storytellers by a guy named Mike Bosworth. Uh, people might know his name because he also wrote Solution Selling like yeah. back in the day. And I remember in, in the opening chapter, he, he talks about the, the, the research they've done that shows people's, our brains light up in different areas and, and just differently in general, when we can tell someone's starting to tell a story. Yeah. The theory is because most of the history of, of, of humans, it was all oral communication. That's how knowledge was passed from one generation to the next. And so we're still hardwired to sit up and listen to a story. 
So yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I found in my world, nobody cares about features. I mean, who gives a rip? Um, yeah. it, it's like, you got to find a way to connect yes. to what truly is going on in their business. So it, it, like I've just found for me, I truly have to understand their business and how mm-hmm. you know I can impact them. Mm-hmm. And if I don't have that, I'm just flailing. You mm-hmm. know, so yeah. how when you have a client that's struggling with that, that you see they're flailing, how what are some of the ways you help them move past that and develop that deep understanding of the customer? Well, it goes back to what you asked a couple of minutes ago. Do they have well-developed ICP profiles? And by that, again, including knowledge that a rep would need to internalize and be able to understand what's going on. More importantly, talk about it intelligently. If they don't have that, we, 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 I mean, we might be able to parallel process on things, but the other things, the methodology and that approach to discovery is you'll, you'll always have some a players that just intuitively understand storytelling. They don't, they may not even know that that's what they're doing and and they're going to get it. But how do you take, uh, I I call it non-conscious selling, right? Um, how, how do you take what they do well intuitively and bottle that for your B players and C players? Right. And without that ICP knowledge and, and some battle cards or some, you know, other, other yeah. ways for reps to take it. Yeah. You, I don't think you can make those other changes we're talking about. No, I don't think you can either. It's, and you said it earlier. I, li- I love what you said about, it's not just enough to tell the story. You have to connect it to the results, the impact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cause otherwise I don't, that's the ending. That's the juicy ending. Yeah. I hear. Hey, we sold yeah. something to him. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But to be fair, a lot of companies maybe don't have that information. And the reason they don't have it is, I'm going to go back to the customer journey enablement, that once the handoff from sales happens, there's no knowledge transfer. Right. Effective sellers are gathering, right? Think about the discovery kind of discovery we're talking about. Okay, what's the gap? What are the impacts to the business? You now have a baseline and you now have success metrics. CSMs rarely are talking to the same people that you sold to, rarely. Do they have any idea what, think of all that gold for them, right? Now they've got basis for QBRs. Now they've got some early warnings to look for in adoption to see if they're not getting those results, what do we do to help them? And and that is too rare still in in my experience um, because, you know, it's on sales to, to make sure that is documented and, yeah. shared with the rest of the GTM teams. Yeah, that's another thing that I see a lot. It, it, I'm shocked every time, but I've been doing this a long time, but it still shocks me at how mm-hmm. often we see it, where we'll ask, okay, deal's one, now what's happening? And mm-hmm. still, people like, well, deal's one, I'm moving on. And, yeah, and, I'm done, yeah, yeah. Wait a minute, that's like this part of the customer relationship. We have this whole other part that's ginormous Yeah. that you know we want to continue driving revenue from this relationship. If we're not managing that that handover and that transfer and doing all those things that you just talked about, mm-hmm. we're not setting up delivery to succeed the most nope. the best possible way. Um, you know that's so important, and one of the ways I think CRM can really be effective. Um, what advice do you have for someone that is struggling with that? They realize, hey, that's us. We have that problem. What's your advice for them? Which, which problem, Chris? Uh, with that handoff between sales oh. and delivery. Well, first, and this is going back to the, the members, customer journey enablement. 
don't just teach your sales team that new methodology. CSMs, well, actually often CSMs have been turned into revenue centers. They they may have a, a ceiling of deals up only up to up, upsells only up to 10K and then it has to go back to a salesperson. Right. But more and more I'm seeing that. At Vonage, for example, um, our CS team took an equivalent quota as a group to the NORAM mid-market team. Wow. So yeah. And and so they need those skills. Now they may apply them differently, but set them up with that. I've also found, if you'll excuse the golf analogy, that you need to give people more club than they need as they're headed up to the green, just in case. Great and, analogy. I love that. Yeah. And 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 so CSMs should have some insights into what's going on when sellers are working with clients. Sellers, right. to your point a minute ago, should also have insights into what's going on in the CS world, especially if they're going to maintain that they may not be the ones working with that account, but they're going to want to have them. They're going to want to be there when it's renewal. And a lot of times companies don't realize that renewal cycle starts the day after contracts are signed. Amen. I'm like a huge believer in that, that mm -hmm. uh, that's when you're really setting, your, uh, setting yourself up for that, that success at that renewal and how you mm -hmm. can really, it's an opportunity to stand out from everybody else. Mm -hmm. Let's face it. Most people suck at that handoff. And they so do. this is your yeah. opportunity to stand out and be really good at that. That's what I try to help organizations understand. The bar is still very low. Right. And I love AI. I'm leveraging it in multiple ways. In fact, I'm in halfway through a two-day virtual conference on sales and AI. It's actually really good. But I'm worried that AI is actually going to move us in the wrong direction because people are using it in, in lazy ways. But but what I try to help you know clients and, and and even when I was internal VP see is the bar is low the opportunity to differentiate not through features and even worse not through discounts but by offering a cohesive truly customer centric um, experience is real yeah. because so many so many of your competitors are still doing the same old same old and. Um, you know, fortunately, some of them get it. Yeah, no, it's amazing. Let's shift our conversation into CRM. Mm -hmm. How do you recommend sales leaders should be leveraging their CRM to be successful? That's a broad question, but what are some of yeah. some examples that you may have for how they should be leveraging CRM? Well, I want to reiterate what we talked about a, a few minutes ago about the fact that look critically at the criteria for your sales stages. Because until you've got that customer input element to them, you're always going to have way too much rep and then frontline leader and then, you know, director level leaders applying their own, you know, gut instinct and fudge factors. You, 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 right. and, and I can't, I, I'm not saying you're going to completely eliminate that, but then, but if you've got truly customer centric sales stages, I mean, you have internal stuff that's important too. Yep then you're actually going to be able to, to eliminate most of it. And the exceptions are then a people problem, not a process problem, which is a lot easier to deal with. The other thing that I've seen in the way sales leaders, and this is, this is not just sales, this is probably a combination of sales leaders, marketing, RevOps leaders, is your salespeople spend already an inordinate amount of time in non-sales activities. And CRM documentation is probably at the top of the list. Again, think critically about the fields that you're asking them to fill out. Yep. And 
keep it narrowed to those that actually are going to make a difference, right? That that boxers or briefs drop down you have probably can lose that. Um, and and I get we want to gather all this stuff about prospects and customers and wins and losses. But the more of that you have, the more it slows down your salespeople, the less selling time they're doing. And frankly, the more difficult compliance becomes. So be thoughtful about that. And I would apply the same thing to your account planning. I, hopefully you have your account plans in your CRM and they're not sitting in a spreadsheet or a Google form somewhere. Yeah. Um, but don't go nuts on, yeah. on what you're asking them to capture in those account plans. Let them help them focus on the critical things. Th those are a few things that come to mind right away. Oh man, you you need to join me on all my uh, my calls because um, that's what we talk about. That's a big part of mm -hmm. what we talk about. That is, mm -hmm. you have this balance. I mean, we've seen we've had clients where you come in, they've had three hundred plus fields on their opportunity. Yeah. What in the world are you going to do with all that? You yeah. know, how is that? You know, that to me is uh, I'm always stunned by that. Thankfully, that's the exception, not the rule. But mm -hmm. the other big thing I see is. The opposite of what you're saying, that the customer-centric sales stages, a lot of times we look at what your stage is, and they're like, well, this is our process. You know, Ooh. this is the process we go through. And yep. I'm like, how's that helping you support the customer move through their journey? Right. You know, like, it, I thought that's what we were trying to do. So when you see yep. that, how do you help um, your customers make that shift from their internal process into more of a customer-centric focus. I love that you brought that up because to me, it, it, it always amazes me why sales organizations think that highly educated, experienced, intelligent people give a crap about their sales process. Right. But, you, but, but what you just described are conversations that we've all heard over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and one of the ways I try to help them see that is well, first we try to paint that vision for offering that different experience. Yeah. And if they buy into that, and often my entry point into a customer or a potential client is head of sales, whether it's an EVP, CSO, yeah, CRO, are typically smaller companies that might be a found. In fact, I did a project earlier this year where it was one of the co-founders and their angel investor that actually came to talk to me. Um, but if you get that buy-in, then the rest becomes easier because you start to show them. And, and I think once people slow down and have conversations about, well, what are the things that you expect your reps to be hearing from customers consistently? Right. And are those true indicators of where they are in their buying cycle? Right. The one then it's just, it just takes, it's education, right? It, it's really yeah. just education. Yeah. And the fact that, I happen to have a lot of experience doing what they are doing currently. Um, any success I've had in, in, in enablement schemes and, and strategies and programs, I attribute to the fact that I lived in the trench for a long time. I, I'm not saying you have to have done that to be effective in revenue enablement work. Mm -hmm. I'm just speaking for myself. I cannot imagine doing what I do and not having that, right? To be able to talk to somebody like yourself and, and and actually have my own war stories and yeah. you know and, and let you know that I actually I do get it right I, yeah. I haven't led a sales team in a decade now okay I know selling's changed but I also am a student of that and and yeah. and, and you know figure out how to apply it um, the one gotcha that sometimes I have to help them overcome is that perception that by aligning to the buyer's 
excuse me, the, the prospects buying cycle that you're giving up control and deals are going to get slowed down. The fact in my experience is it's the opposite. Once your reps have actually got the skills down and are doing it consistently and doing it well. Right. Um, so that sometimes takes a little bit of work to, to help people see that you're not, you're actually right. much more attuned with what's going on. And frankly, if, if you're not, and you end up doing things at the end of the cycle to force them, uh, you know, the end of the quarter, right. The hook a brother up close, I call it. Right. Um, yeah. The, the, the insane discounts. Then what is that costing you? What are those discounts? What, but in fact, that's one of my favorite metrics to baseline and track as a success leading success metric is yeah. what's the average level of discount, especially in the SaaS world. That that's money that's gone and 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 it's a gift that keeps on giving every single month. Yeah, and um, you're not you're setting that expectation and hey, yeah. you, you gave me this huge discount before. Why? Can't yeah, you and now I'm a returning customer. You know, you must yeah, really exactly. love me. I'm like, why can't yeah. you do it now? And yeah. uh, um. It, but if I can get them thinking that way, yeah. then the idea of including customer inputs in the process starts to make more sense to them. We've never measured it. So my data is all anecdotal, but mm -hmm. I do think there's a strong correlation between the the companies that have their sales process set up that mm -hmm. is, hey, this is our process, mm -hmm. that they don't truly have a deep understanding of their customers buying journey. Mm -hmm. So it's just easier for them to do it this way rather than really dive in and do all these things you've been talking about to truly understand yep. the customer, understand their journey. What are the things that they're going through as they work through their process? It takes a lot of work and effort to understand oh, it does. that stuff. And it, no it, it does. It's a lot easier to dictate than to listen. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. Um, you just reminded me of something. Going back to your question about, you know, common CRM yeah. mistakes. Yeah. Really think about how many sales stages you really you actually oh, need. Yeah. I've worked I've, I've worked in and with companies that have 10, 12 sales stages. And yeah. it, it, after a while, it just gets kind of silly. It's nuts. I, yeah, that's another one that, um, yeah, it really, that, I don't know. I, I mean, think about when you're buying something, you're not going through 12 stages. No. I mean, no. like, come on. Even complex enterprise sales, not likely. Yeah, no, it, it's, yeah. it's, I think that's crazy in, in, uh, a lot of times those, what I see those stages aren't really stages. They're more tasks or things that have to happen. And like, that's not a stage, you know, that it's, yeah, that's a good point. Just, we just need to reframe this stuff. And uh, anyway, well, Paul, it's been great talking to you. This is one of those episodes where I easily could go another hour with you, but yeah, uh, we're at our yeah, time. This is on sales fun Lima. to geek out on this stuff. Oh, big time. If yeah. people want to reach out and connect with you, Paul, um, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, there's two ways. I, I'm very active on LinkedIn, super easy to find. And there's a book a time button right at the top of my profile. Or if they're interested in seeing the work that we're doing, they can go to www.revenueflywheelgroup.com and read about some of the things, see some of the customer quotes. And then also there's a schedule button for them at the bottom of that. That's awesome. So if you didn't catch that, we will have all that in our show notes. You can get the show notes at impellercrm.com forward slash sales lead dog, where you will get not only this episode, but all our 100 plus episodes of sales lead dog. So be sure to check that out. Be sure to get um, Paul's contact info there and, and reach out to him and, and learn more about Revenue Flywheel Group. Paul, thanks again for coming on Sales Lead Dog and welcome to the Sales Lead Dog Pack. Thanks, Chris. 
As we end this discussion on Sales Lead Dog, be sure to subscribe to catch all our episodes. On social media, follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Watch the videos on YouTube. And you can also find our episodes on our website at impellercrm.com forward slash sales lead dog. Sales Lead Dog is supported by Impeller CRM, delivering objectively better CRM for business, guaranteed.